broadcasting from an Iconian gateway. This is Politrex. The time directive, the Declaration of Human Rights, the United Federation of Planets, the United Nations, the World War II, the Dominion Federation War, the Art of War, the Teachings of Sirach, Jesus Christ. Welcome, everyone, to Politrex. We're so happy that you've decided to warp in and listen to this fine little podcast that we have here. We're pretty excited, actually, for this one. It's been a bit of a rest period since Debate Trex. I know Jim is still, uh, still, he's, he's, uh, He's still ringing out his his uh, shirt, and I'm still uh, wringing out my hair. I can't believe I lost, uh, but you know what? I, I lost to the best, and it's much like it uh, how we we Canadians are are losing to the Americans. Uh, Winnipeg has lost to the Golden Knights, and now, of course, I have to cheer for the Golden Knights. So here we are. But uh, I would be remiss if I wouldn't introduce also the often imitated, never replicated, Mr. Shashank Avaru. How are you doing tonight, Shashank? Did he just make a sports reference? Do you think our listener care about little people throwing around plastic objects? We live in space. We are in the future. We have gone so far ahead that things like sports don't matter. Anyway, namaste homo sapiens. It's wonderful to be on our show again. It was awesome to see Barry get his ass kicked. I'm totally kidding. That was a wonderful debate Rex debut. That was uh, totally Barry's idea. Even if he or if, if he doesn't take credit for it, he let me loose on the format of it, but it was mostly Barry and him convincing me that this is a good idea. I'm very heartened by the response we got to Debatrix that kind of blew up. And I'm uh, happy to see that we had such a great response. And it's definitely not the last Debatrix we'll have, is it? No, no. And, and yeah, judging from the vote response, I walked directly into a chainsaw. But I'm okay with that. Also, maybe our next debate, Trex, is how important sports is in Star Trek. Because uh, let me just say, uh, <clears throat> the Niners are pretty important. You know what else is important, Barry? Me. Defeating the Borg. Yeah, you know. Having having a stable civilization, defeating the Cardassians, saving the Bajorans. That's what's important. Okay. It's not people throwing around about, okay, I'm just complaining because I'm bad at sports. I'm sure everybody saw through that. Leisure is a very, very important part of life on a starship. That's all I have to say. Do you know what my kind of sports are? Hmm. Jumping to conclusions. That's my impressive sport activity. Well, if you have any conclusions that you would like to jump through or you'd like to tell us about how important or non-important sport is in Star Trekdom, you can always call into the show and leave us a voicemail at 609-512-LLAP. That is 609-512-5527s. 5527, not 7s, just 17. We are Paul Trex. Uh, on the Tricorder Transmissions podcast network, and we are proud members of that podcast network because we share it with some fantastic shows like the Tricorder Transmissions, Shore Leave, Trek Ranks, Drawing Trek, Disco Trek, Reading Trek, Weekly Trek. We've got Trek Profiles. Um, yeah, no, it's uh, when you want to find something, you will find it here, and you will find it in in mass. So it's a, it's a great thing to have. However, if you do manage to find us on Facebook or Twitter, Shashank knows the way. Yeah, if you are a millennial like me, 
and think that calling on the phone and actually talking to people is the last thing you want to do, you can send us an, an passive-aggressive message or a very kind message on at Polytrex on Twitter. That's P-O-L-I-T-R-E-K-S. Or you can follow us on our Facebook page on Polytrex, P-O-L-I-T-R-E-K-S. We appreciate feedback, both good and bad. Just a gentle reminder, you can also leave us a review on iTunes. Find us on iTunes, leave us a review there. We're still looking for your postcard in Riser. We love that review. I have no idea who it is. I've still not discovered it. But just do uh, things like that for us because it, it helps us out a great deal. It helps us keep our crazy airwaves afloat so we can throw around important discussions like, is sports really important to Starship? Well, I just say that if you send any messages to the host of Trek Profiles, John Kikorian, do not send him any messages using any capital letters. Of course, right now, he is anti-capitals, just so you're aware. And, uh... <laughs> anyway, you ready to get on with the news, Barry? I think it's time we get on to the news. everyone thank you for sticking around this is our new segment of the show where we discuss some of the burning headlines we talk about important news items uh, around the world specifically political or socio-political related and we try to find the trek in it and we try to compare it to something in star trek so we can make sense of it and it's essentially our way of trying to bring perspective to things from the franchise we love so much. And speaking of news, this heavy burden just keeps getting heavier on us as co-hosts, but we must judge on. We have to talk about the 1,500 kids that went missing. And my immediate reaction was outrage when I heard that ICE had managed to essentially lose 1,500 kids during the separation of kids from their parents in while dealing with illegal immigrants. But I understand that the situation is not as easy as that one headline. Is it, Barry? No. And it's always good to make a number of distinctions on this. There's illegal and then there's undocumented. Of course, undocumented immigrants, um, I believe every year, do show up at the ICE office to, to basically kind of get things figured out um, per year. So in the past, this this has sort of been a normal thing. <clears throat> now, the, the problem is, is the 1,500 quote-unquote missing kids is actually not missing in the sense of like, they're gone, gone, gone forever, and we don't know where they are. It's actually that ICE offices have been calling homes where these kids are being fostered or taken care of with next of kin and family. But because everyone's so incredibly afraid of being immediately deported by them, nobody's answering their phones. And so basically what it boils down to is, and coming from a teacher's perspective again, it would be much like if a parent was to call my school and we didn't answer, and then the parent immediately said, my child is missing. So ICE is calling homes and nobody's answering because everyone's afraid that if they answer the phone, ICE agents are actually waiting in a van down the block, ready to take them away because they know they're home. So the 1500 missing is a bit of a conflation, but where we actually really want to talk about uh, and, and what's really happening, and this is from a Vice News article that uh, came out on the uh, 25th of May, it's actually that 
um, the migrants who are arriving right now, um, illegally or, or undocumented wise, um, they are actually being separated as families. And so in the first 13 days of the program, 658 kids have been separated from their families. And ICE is building basically an infrastructure to separate these families. And basically what this boils down to is it's a, it's a bullying tactic. It's, um, it's terrible. And I mean, I, I was watching uh, a number of sort of, you know, different, different commentaries on it. And, you know, from what I understand about the United States, there there's a Statue of Liberty that says, you know, give me your poor, your weary, and, and all that sort of stuff. And it didn't say, you know, make them come through the, the proper means. I mean, this, they call the United States a land of opportunity. Now, I'm not a big fan of people doing things necessarily illegally, but I'm, I'm, these people are coming to contribute. These people are coming to be a part of the economy and stuff. And I mean, the stats have it, that illegal immigrants, undocumented people, I mean, nobody's illegal, come on. But the fact that these people are showing up and they're working and they're they're contributing i mean that's got to that's got to count for something i mean they're being scapegoated i think in a lot of cases now i'm not an american and i've said that a number of times and canada has its fair share of things that it needs to own up to i was just telling shashank earlier 4000 women um Nate, uh, aboriginal first nations women have gone missing on the yellowhead highway between edmonton and saskatoon in the last 15 years or so 4000 women and the fact that that's happening in Canada, we mean, we have a fraction of the American population. So we feel 4,000 quite a lot. So, I mean, I'm not trying to say that we've got something better going on. I think both nations have a certain level of corruption that they need to figure out. But uh, yeah, I, I hope that's articulate enough. And I hope I've managed to maintain my composure. How do you think I did, Shashank? You did well, you did well. I think the term you're looking for is inhumane. It's inhumane. It's it speaks to the lowest levels of humanity and the fact that a parent has to make a choice between calling ICE and essentially declaring that they're illegal or lose their child is the worst kind of Sophie's choice that exists in this world. And I would never wish it upon anyone, not upon my worst enemy. It's like asking someone to be chosen whether they want to die by the frying pan or by the fire. It's ridiculous. And I don't know, at what point does this not become Cardassian Empire bullying and destroying the Bajorans piece by piece? How is this any different from the starting stages of that invasion and that that theft and that the rape of that culture? The fact that they're taking children away and forcing people out of their hole, even though most of these people, they have not come here out of their whim. There are people who are escaping great tragedy. There are people who are escaping crime. There is one example that was pointed out recently in the John Oliver show where there was a person who had escaped. A lady had escaped a gangster trying to kidnap her and marry her in South America. And I found her and they sent her back. And a month later, that gangster found her and killed her for running away. The fact that these things are happening and there are still people who support this administration with eyes closed that I have no idea if this is even worthy of being called the United States of America anymore because it has come, it is tarnishing the legacy of this country 
the legacy of we will take your hungry, we will take your poor, we will make the best of the worst situations that people have come through, that this is the land of second chances. All of that is disappearing and they're slowly turning into a dictatorial regime that is hell-bent on destroying lives of anyone that doesn't bear the same skin color that the old white people have in that administration. And that sickens me. It just, it, it reminds me of so many horrible, horrible incidents from the past, the most obvious one being Nazi Germany. And this, this horrible notion that Trump in his recent tweet where he essentially blamed the Democrats for this happening and saying that it's because of them that ICE is doing this, even though it is a specific policy introduced by his administration, this whataboutism and this questioning the truth and this rape of facts, it it just has gotten too much for me to bear. And I, I don't know how long I can keep my composure. So we're both losing our composure today, Barry. Yeah. And I'm sure our listeners are delighted. <laughs> I guess my, my big thing is, is where where's the track, right? Where's the track in all this? Because, I mean, Star Trek has given us some some heavy things and and i mean maybe i'm maybe i'm i'm picking low-hanging fruit but i'm thinking of in the pale moonlight um i'm thinking of uh for the uniform right these moments where cisco has to make these terrible decisions right that that do cost so much and it's for this greater good um or at least what he perceives to be i think i think actually for the uniform covers it a lot better when he poisons those planets with those photon torpedoes. <clears throat> we are presented with a moral conundrum, right? It's a prideful conundrum as well. And it's something that, you know, necessarily speaking, you know, yeah, Cisco didn't, didn't totally, it's not like, it's not like he was given much of a choice. And for Trump to, to blame the Obama administration, I mean, ICE was formed under the Bush administration in 2002. I mean, things got by fine without these the, this 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 specific border agency who don't operate on the borders. They operate inside of the United States itself. But going back to his his desire to catch Eddington and the lengths he's willing to go to prove his point was to displace countless people who admittedly weren't supposed to be on the planet they were supposed to be on. But does that justify destroying their homes, destroying their livelihoods? Quite possibly. Imagine if you were, I don't know, in the basement of your house or something, and that poisonous photon torpedo drops down, and you can't get away. So Cisco could have been responsible for the deaths of thousands of people. All for all for a uh, you know, to, to, to keep his, his personal policy alive. And so I think that's kind of where we can look at the trek in this is anyone who said, yeah, well, you know, Cisco had to catch Eddington. No, we were supposed to look at Cisco and go, okay, that was too far. You know, basically be like, no, that was, that was too much. Cisco, Cisco crossed a line. That's why we like this character because he's not perfect. And, you know, I do like the United States because it's not perfect. I do like Canada because it's not perfect. Um, and there are a lot of internal contradictions that exist within both of these countries. And there's internal contradictions within my own head. Um, I mean, I don't think as one individual, we can necessarily say, you know, Trump is specifically responsible for this either. I think it's it's every border, border agent that gets up in the morning and dons his or her bulletproof vest and goes out and terrorizes people. I think we need to look at, at 
at sort of the sway of society. And there are a lot of American citizens, a lot of friends that I have, yourself included, Shashank, who aren't happy with this. And this is where we need to start really looking at what we're going to do about it, what how we are going to... Um, Make sure that this becomes something that ends up in 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 our in our history and not in our future. It's also very important to think about this situation in terms of where is the solution in all of this. Like there is this outrage and there is this anger that's justified, but if it's not going anywhere, how does this help? I think the best thing people can do to help is one vote vote all these people out who are standing by and supporting these decisions and not acknowledging the fact that this is horrible and wrong and needs to stop immediately and are as much damage as possible can should be undone but it's also important to understand where the blame lies so you can direct the solutions that way it's not it's not simple enough to blame people who voted trump it's also important that there is a system that exists that allows for things like this to happen. And the fact that there is an administration now that's taking advantage of it, that's partly their fault, but it's also partly the fault of a system that seems to go against the ideals of, hey, give us your hungry, your poor, your weary masses. Why do you say that and then have a system that allows legalities through which people can separate children from their parents. It reminds me of Journey's End from The Next Generation and how there is that situation on Dorvan 5 where the Native Americans are essentially, what happened to them here in the North American continent happened to them all those years later and the fact that their land is being taken away from them and the fact that there are people being displaced and Picard essentially at the beginning saying, hey, I'm helpless about this, shows in some way that the system is allowing things like this to happen and that there's a cost for the long-term peace that has been established in that area and doing things like this where they're clearly morally right or morally wrong. The fact that we have that choice and the fact that we are smart enough to make that choice, I think is very important. And the outrage is very important too. But it's time for action, and I think the best action we can do in a democracy is vote these people out. Another thing, and and I would say, um, to close this off, um, another thing that I would say is really important is to just start dispelling this culture of fear that's been built uh, since since September 11th, 2001. And I mean, I remember that day. I'll never forget it. And I wasn't even in the same country. You know, I mean, I spoke to Jeff Hewlett about that day. I mean, he lives in New Jersey. He saw it, right? He saw it with his eyes. And that's, in, that's incredible. Like, I, I can't imagine what, what he would have went through. And and my heart goes out to, to everyone who experienced that as close as they, as they could have. Um, but, you know, Another another democratic thing that people can do is is get to know your neighbors, right? I think we atomize so much in society. We we try to break apart. Um, I'm starting something actually in my neighborhood, and it's something based off. I've been inspired by a friend of mine who actually lives in Omaha, Nebraska. So shout out to Brett if you're listening. Um, but he he does. Um, uh, basically a coalition where you know they they go in and and feed people if they can if they have extra food they they assist um other people they try to make they try to make their community right they had a they had a get together um earlier in the month um with just people in their community coming by and and getting together and and just getting to know each other and i think that's such an important thing you know we're all going to be diverse you know you're going to meet people who support different political ideals i mean 
it's a natural thing is people who have different favorite colors. But the more you get to know a person, the more you get to look at them in the eye, the more you can build empathy. And I think that's one of the biggest things, you know, you think about some of these undocumented people who've been deported. There was one story I heard about where basically he was like the nicest guy in the neighborhood. And um, he got deported and everyone in the neighborhood was like, wow, that's that's total crap. Like, aren't you supposed to be getting these like drug dealers and stuff? This guy like mowed other people's lawn for them. Like the more you build a community, the stronger it becomes. And a strong community is a safe community. And that's where, that's where you can rely on, on your neighbor. Um, you know, Hey, you go on vacation, your neighbors know you're on vacation, you know, Hey, they haven't heard from you. Why are they going to knock on the door? That sort of stuff. Stronger communities. That's that's where I say is the next piece of it. It's very important that people also know that I, as an immigrant to this country, I'm grateful that I have wonderful neighbors. A neighbor helped me get my dog. I have a dog today because of my neighbor. I have a great weekend with a friend who wants to go watch movies with me because I have great neighbors. And they needs to. And they're all white people. They're all delightful, friendly, wonderful white people. And the fact that I'm brown and they're white, and that never gets in the way of a friendship, is one of the reasons why I worked so hard so I could move here and live this life, is where I could live in a multicolored, a multi-ethnic community, and people, instead of judging us by our differences, celebrate them. And you're absolutely right. I think commun- the fact that, even just think about any Star Trek show, any any bridge, the fact that there is so much diversity is not what makes the show burdensome or complicated it's essentially the reason why we love that show is because there are so many people who have diverse opinions people who come from diverse places in the universe and there are people in the shows that are literally made by other people that come to life and they want to experience humanity and that's one of the joys of the shows so just be open to being a part of your community and take joy in getting to know your neighbors make an effort to go meet that neighbor that you've been putting off that meeting with go and find that main neighbor that you might think might be from another country and maybe you don't know how that might get along there's nothing wrong with taking a chance and you before you know it you might be all the better for it anyway moving on to other news barry i have some interesting stats that i wanted to talk to you about and i they i find them disturbing to say the least i've shared one of them on our polytrex page on twitter uh, you can follow us on Polytrex on at Polytrex. I just do that by habit now. <laughs> but there is one poll that is very specific to our country, America. And it is that the approval rating for Trump now is at 45%. And take this poll with a grain of salt. There is no reason to panic. There is The country hasn't turned a blind eye and let him take over. None of that is happening. But it is disturbing that his approval rating is on the rise in spite of him objectively making the worst possible decisions. And internationally, there are 60% of people in a certain country that trust North Korean's dictatorial premier, Kim Jong-un. And it's not the United States. It's not Canada. It's not even North Korea. It's South Korea. The fact that there is a poll now that says 60% of South Koreans trust Kim Jong-un, there is a disturbing parallel there of leaders pushing lies, leaders using their power to abuse and destroy freedoms, and yet keep pushing some kind of narrative that that seems to keep succeeding against all odds and bringing people 
to trust them, that is very disturbing. I feel like every time I read something like this, I am Dr. Krushen, remember me, and everything around me is disappearing. Everything that I know and love and believe is changing, and I can't understand why. And all I can think of is, if there is nothing wrong with me, there is something wrong with the universe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know what to make of that poll. Um, I, I'll have to read it because at the time of recording, I haven't, I haven't seen it. And <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. That's that's pretty pretty crazy. And I mean, approval ratings up, go up and down. You know, I mean, I've I've heard of it changing. You know, with with different presidents over time. And you know, I don't know. Polls are are interesting. They 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 aren't always exact, and sometimes, you know, they really are just sort of a good conversation piece to sort of check the dipstick on the fluids of society, I guess. And for the South Koreans, I mean, they've got a a big horse in the race, right? I mean, I think both South and North Korea want to see a unified Korea, right? They want to see a a a better world for, for themselves. And, and, you know, I mean, I've mentioned this many times before, but, you know, the economic impacts that create that North Korea has, has had inflicted upon it is also a part of the reason why it's had its famines and its, its problems, right. And economic warfare has been waged on it. Let's also not forget that, you know, in the Korean war, hundreds of thousands of Americans and, and uh, tens of thousands of Canadians were injured or wounded or killed uh, 3 million North Koreans were killed in that war. Three million. Uh, and that, that's a lot of people. And arguably more people died in, in the famine in North Korea um, due to the, the short-sighted policies of uh, Kim Il-sung and the Juche policy. But I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of factors there. And I'm not making excuses for, for the Kims necessarily. What I'm basically saying is a unified Korea, I mean, we just talked about this, you know, if you're friendly with your neighbors, you're going to be safe. And North Korea and South Korea are neighbors. In fact, they're, they're sort of, sort of more like siblings. And I think it's time that this conflict gets put to an end. And I mean, obviously, it's going to take years before they could consider them even remotely consider themselves one country, but two separate nations under under one sort of idea, I think is, is an important thing to think about. And if they're willing to put their trust in Kim Jong Un, I guess I mean that's their prerogative as as a as a people. I think you and I might differ on this and it's completely okay on our show to differ and disagree and one of the joys of doing the show with you is that we disagree on things and yet we can share our love for Trek and share our love for politics through the show and let that come through. But all I will leave the story with is the fact that Trump pulled out of the peace summit, come on, that was as predictable as all of us knowing that the g- good gull Ducat was never going to last. We just knew there was, it was only time before he betrayed Cisco and he turned his back on everything that he was essentially saying was good and right and now he has turned over a new leaf so that was clear and on this very show when we started in our initial episodes we held out hope for a unified Korea on this show I spent majority of our last episode talking about how incredible it is that there is a peace summit that possibly might bring the Koreas together and now we're back to square one but we are both ever hopeful because hope springs eternal and we just really would love to someday hopefully see a unified Korea and an end to this bloody, unreasonable, entirely ridiculous conflict. Well, you know what? Trump pulls out. That doesn't mean that uh, 
that the leaders in in Korea and and the supporting leaders in in Asia can't come to some kind of agreement on their own terms, right? Absolutely, and uh, maybe it's time we do move past the Americocentric narrative of America is going to fix everybody's problems. And given the situation now, I think it is important for countries to take that initiative. Anyway, moving on to some happy news. Uh, we have talked about some of the most important developments in the world, but I am yet to share an update on my most important development in my world. And that is an update on my awesome puppy, General Zord. He's a four-month-old black lab. Yeah, you, you, basically the way Shashank has been ex- exploring this whole world of of puppy ownership, I think is much like how the Enterprise was dealing with their their Tribble infestation. Um, it sounds like they're cute and they warm your heart and they make everything great, but at the same time, um, <clears throat> they can be a little obtuse and uh, perhaps a touch obnoxious, and they'll eat all your food if they can, but uh, darn, you know, they're just so darn cute, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I Every time uh, he pees on the carpet, he looks so cute doing it. I can't be mad at him. It's such a trouble with trivial situation for me, Barry. I have no idea what to do. But just to give you guys an update, I did share with Barry that there was something that I wanted to talk about specifically with my puppy. And it's been over a month now. This is my first time owning a dog. I've never had one as a child. I did dog sit a few times when I was a kid but that was as close to I got to completely owning and living with a puppy that's all my own and essentially my kid now and uh, I over the course of this month one of the conclusions I've come to is that I feel like a dog ending up with a human specifically my dog ending up with the human in me And in general, any dog ending up with any human is the worst possible experience that that dog could have. Let me explain before everybody gets riled up, because I'm hoping most of our listeners are pet owners. And if you're not, please adopt a pet. It's the best thing you can do with your life. If we humans upended the cycle of life on this planet, we completely destroyed the concept of society of all other species of animals by destroying jungles and taking them over and you letting our society run roughshod over theirs and displacing animals all across the planet. In a natural world, puppies, which are descendants of wolves, would have stayed with their pack and their entire lives would have been in that community. And... Over time, that has changed to all his humans ending up with puppies and dogs and now essentially this coexistence that seems to benefit the world for all reasons. But I believe that it's the worst experience that that puppy could have is a tiny child who will never see his mother again, who will never see his father again. General Zord, my dog, I have no idea where he came from. He literally just showed up in my apartment. And I adopted him, but I will never know who his father is. I'll never know when he was born. He will never see his mother or his father again. And all he has now is a two-legged mammal who will feed him on a schedule using a construct of time that their species has designed and someone who will probably never really understand the, the dog in the picture. And all my love will be of no use if there isn't the important tender care that only another dog could give him. And it's my responsibility now as a pet owner, and this is the great joy of my life, 
is I get to turn what is his worst experience in his life, the best possible life he could have. And that is one of my life's purposes now. And the fact that that is a responsibility I have just gives me so much more drive than I used to have every day. I wake up early morning, excited to walk him. I, I wake up with a new purpose. I wake up knowing that I'm responsible for another life. And now I genuinely get to experience what most dog owners experience. And I just hate myself for not having taken this step earlier and jumped the gun and just jumped in blind and adopted a dog and figured everything out because boy, is it the best experience of my life. Anyway, that's just an update on puppy tracks. I'm sorry if that was boring. I I hope I didn't hog the limelight, Barry. No, no, it's all good. I always just like to say, you, you give dogs a, a part of your life. It's important. But always remember, a dog gives you all of its life. And, uh, and that's the most important part. Stop making me cry, Barry. <laughs> well, we have a great show ahead of for you folks. Our main topic is with the illustrious Miss Amy Nelson, where we talk about teachers who love Star Trek. And incidentally... There are a lot of people in the education community, as you will find, on this here podcast. So without further ado, here we have our main topic. Welcome everyone to our main topic. Today we welcome someone who is a personal inspiration in the world of Trek podcasting. She is a staple of the fantastic shows that come out of Trek FM and has graced many other podcasts in the Tricorder Network and beyond. Ms. Amy Nelson is a fellow educator and lover of all things TNG, Riker especially. And I don't know, I feel somewhat like the cat who caught the canary getting to introduce Amy to the show here as she is truly one of the cornerstones of the Trek community. I think the first time I heard you, Amy, was on the Trek Geeks podcast when you talked the season three of TNG, See It or Skip It. Then it was followed by episode 22 of The Edge where you, Brandy Jacola, and our very own Heather Barker talked of the personal connections you have to Trek. And that marked the second time I had to pull my car over because my eyes don't have wiper blades. And since then, I've enjoyed <laughs> checking out a lot of your, your back catalog episodes. So, Amy, welcome to Politrex. It's a distinguished pleasure to have you on. Well, thank you so very much. I was actually wondering, like, how did you even hear me? I'm just you know, a little podcaster doing my own thing. And to have you guys invite me, I was very, very honored to be on your show. Before we started the recording, Amy said that this is an honor. If this is what, make sure you guys follow her on Twitter, find her and ask her if at the end of the show, she should, she thought this was the, this was still an honor. <laughs> it is. I, I uh, started listening to your show and am very impressed with uh, your ideas and your content. And I think it's it's really good. And I've learned quite a bit in your what what episode is this? Five, six, eleven. Actually, this is our eleven. Oh, dear. <laughs> I still got a few to go. But the, the five or six that I've listened to, definitely very impressed with uh, your work that you do. Actually, Barry, isn't this our 12th? Didn't we just drop episode 11? Oh, right. No, yeah, this is episode 12. Yeah. Make Whoa. sure we get that what one extra episode in there. Yeah. Thank you so much for saying that, Amy. You're you're very, very kind. Uh, we could maybe start off this main topic, teaching track, which is going to be hopefully a well-debated, intellectually fulfilling discussion about teaching and Star Trek. So if you could just start off telling us how you got into education, how you got into teaching and what the job means to you. 
Oh, well, um, how did I get into teaching? That's a very good question. I started going to university with the idea that I was going to be into chemical engineering. Uh, but then organic chemistry kicked my butt a couple <laughs> quarters. So I had all of this math that I was that I had taken. I thought, what am I going to do with all these math classes? And I thought, oh, well, I'll just teach math. And so I started with my education classes and uh, really found that I quite enjoyed it. And I have been teaching since 2000. So finishing up my 18th year teaching. And I just absolutely love it. It was funny because my mom pulled out this letter that I had written back in third grade. And it was, you know, one of those questions, what do you want to be when you grow up? And it, there in my own third grade little girl writing was, I want to be a teacher. I thought, man, I don't ever remember wanting to be a teacher. Uh, but it was interesting to see it come full circle, actually. So we wouldn't necessarily find you uh, find you on the botany lab of the enterprise. Then you're saying with uh, with getting your butt kicked by organic chemistry. Yes, no, I would definitely stay out of that part. <laughs> I, I think on Kirk's enterprise, uh, Amy will be the math teacher who is pulled into the botany lab, and she keeps telling Kirk, "Damn it, Jim, I'm a math teacher, not a chemical engineer." <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a, that's funny how how you know I, I find a lot of people will will see sort of teaching kind of kind of almost creep up on them a little bit. And you're saying that there was almost some uh, some foreshadowing in your early years. When was that point where you were really certain about being a teacher in that sense? You know, you said you had the math and everything like that. When you started your job in 2000, being a teacher, was it almost immediate or was it like 2006, 2007? Like, when did you really go, okay, you know what, this is the thing I want to do? Or are you there yet? Oh, I am there. I love teaching. It is definitely something that fulfills me in every aspect of my life. I love working with the kids. I love, uh, I love math. And so it just is a really perfect fit in my life. I would say probably when I started doing my student teaching, so the year before, um, I was in a high school and I had a great uh, co-teacher that took me under her wing and really taught me the ropes. And I, I just knew and I felt like I was only with those kids, the student teaching, you know, for a quarter but I felt that they were mine. And I still remember some of their names and, you know, wonder how they're doing uh, all these years ago. But it, it definitely was an immediate thing. Once I got through my courses there, you know, I just I really fell in love with the idea of teaching the next generation. Ooh, I like that plug there, teaching the next generation. There you go. I find that teaching um, is almost a, a, a sort of a, a way to kind of keep keep yourself quote unquote young or, or or preserve the youth inside of you. Do you find much time to to kind of use play in your classroom as well, Amy? Oh yes, and I find that now that I'm getting a little bit older, I'm in my 40s now, um, but all through my 20s and and 30s, like I felt like I was just right there with the kids, and now there's a little more separation as I'm approaching the age of my students' parents. That's a little scary. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> you know, going to the dances and to the assemblies and, you know, sort of hanging out with the kids, 
of course, inappropriate situations at school and, you know, working with them in clubs and advisors and stuff like that really does uh, keep you in the mix and keeps you, you know, sort of remembering what you went through. So it's never that far away because you're always remembering, oh, yeah, I used to feel like this. Oh, yeah, I remember having friend troubles in high school. Oh, yeah, I remember having a crush and it not working out, you know. And so when the students share with me their issues and what's going on in their life, it it does. It keeps you young and keeps you, you know, in the moment of where these students are. That's incredible. I especially like the fact that you on you're honest about the difficulties you face within your job, but actually turning them into a positive and the fact that you found a disconnect because of your age, you actually use that to your advantage because it helps you remember those memories and give them the advice that help you get through all of it. Did you ever have an issue to where you thought maybe teaching is not the best thing that I want to do once you got into it? Or have you always felt confident in your profession? Well, I've taught in three different states. I started off in Utah. I did two years in Texas, and I am currently in Las Vegas, Nevada. But the time that I taught in Texas was a time that I felt like I needed to leave education, in part because I was being asked to... Um, this just happened to me. I, I don't want to say that it's across the board, but it did happen to me where I was asked to change grades because students needed to play in football. And I didn't feel that that was right. That was my integrity. The students should be earning the grade. And but they're the star football player. Um, and I just thought, wow, what where is education going because of this? And it it forced me to look at man, if I want to leave education, what am I going to do? And I didn't like the fact that I didn't like teaching anymore because of these demands being placed on me. So I started thinking and I was like, okay, what am I going to do? Where am I going to get a job that I get two months off in the summer and two weeks off at Christmas? You know, all really the advantages of teaching really came to the forefront. And I thought, you know what, I don't want to give up teaching. So that's when I decided to leave the state of Texas. And I've moved on to here, Nevada, and I love it still. So I've heard a lot of very good about um, teaching down uh, in Nevada, actually. Um, I try to keep up and up on on my, my fellow teaching compatriots all over. I actually taught in the United Kingdom for a while in London. And that's actually where I kind of got my chops where I was like, you know what, I think I want to do this. In my practica, uh, we have two of them. The first one, I really wasn't terribly sure that I was getting into the right profession. And the second one was kind of a gimme because I ended up in the high school that I graduated from. And it was a performing and visual arts high school. So I got to like go and play trombone in the same jazz band that I was in. And I got to be part of a play and all this different stuff. But uh, yeah, no, there's those moments when you finally actually know what you want to do. And it was actually in the thick of teaching in inner city London with kids who had gang affiliations and undiagnosed Mm -hmm. social emotional problems and stuff that I, you know, the the small victory suddenly became bigger. And so when I came back to Canada, I definitely wanted to find the right place for myself. So it's that's good that you that you didn't let yourself sort of stay in, in a place that wasn't going to, you know, match I think what it what it does mean to be a teacher and that is the achievement of students uh from from their successes and failures rather than some kind of privilege that uh they they're sort of assumed to be given due to some kind of 
you know, I don't know, you know, he just said sort of athletic ability or something. I saw kids mm-hmm. in London who were, who were going home to houses that were empty half the time and coming, you know, mm-hmm. coming back with, with injuries over the weekend from getting into a gang fight and then trying their hardest to pass a test or something like that. And you're like, okay, you know, we, we have to, we have to really, really keep this, uh, this profession sacred. So I appreciate that. That's really cool. Yeah, it was definitely when I came to uh, Southern Nevada that those students really jumped out at me. I was placed in a couple of at-risk schools and very at-risk, you know, and you just develop these relationships with the students and you see them day in, day out coming in and and then you start to hear, oh, well, I'm homeless and it just tears your heart out. And yes, oh, I'm, you know, you can see the change of, now they're in a gang. And so it's just, it's heart wrenching and to build, I think those relationships. And so that these students can have, you know, one adult that they can trust in, you know, a setting that's appropriate, I think is very important. And teaching at-risk kids is definitely um, fulfilled me. And, and that's where I enjoy teaching the most. That is wonderful. Amy. I've I've heard a few different things about teaching in Las Vegas itself. I've heard that it can be a bit of a gamble, but I'm ga- I'm glad the artist schools got you with the jackpot of positivity because you were able to turn such a negative situation into a positive one. That's it. Those are my two Las Vegas puns for the day. I am done. <laughs> but Barry, I do want to touch a little bit on what you were talking about. Since you've told me how you were able to gel up your your need to entertain and be good at it. And then the fact that you could find specific subsets of students that you especially wanted to help. Maybe both of you can answer this. Have you guys, do you guys think that after spending so much time in the education field, you've gotten to where you wanted to be now, or do you feel like there's just more work to be done? Oh boy. Well, to keep the pun going, I don't think things are perfect for me right now, but I'm not going to bet on 19. (laughs) I think I think that's the best part about being a teacher, and I and I don't know if you would agree, Amy, is that uh, you know if you're not in a state of conflict or a conflicted state, you know where you're forced to learn and rethink and kind of wily e. coyote things, you know, like have a have a like a almost a rinse and repeat lesson plan that you can just be like, yeah, this one knocks it out of the park every time, and then you walk into a class and the kids just just rip it to shreds, and you're back to to square one trying to figure out how to get through it. I think that's the best part about being a teacher. Is it it keeps you sharp. And I like that. Oh, absolutely. I, okay. So I've been teaching 18 years. I think maybe the past four years, I feel like a seasoned teacher. Up until then, I felt brand new for the first 10 years of my teaching career. And I was like, man, why am I still a new teacher? I've done this 10 years, 12 years in a row. What is going on? Because it is constant. You are constantly learning and I mean, and I know that the math hasn't changed. We did get, we've adopted a common core. So there is a little bit of change with how you teach it, but you're right. You can have a lesson plan and it still happens. Like, I know this is a great lesson plan. It'll do fabulously. And then it will flop with the next period. And you're like, what is going on? So the dynamics that the students bring to the classroom always keeps you on your toes. And that's, the amazing part. And, you know, I always look at, say, like a performer, 
Um, and they have to perform the same songs over and over again. And I think, man, that has got to be the most boring job ever. And I think, wait, I do the same thing, but it's the interaction with the students that keeps it fresh and you, you continually go to professional development. And so you're learning different strategies and different ways to teach and make different connections. I've taught everything from math seven up to pre-calculus. So I think part of that has made me a better teacher because I see the connections from where they started with in pre-algebra and then making those connections throughout all the way up to pre-calculus. So I think that that continual growth happens whether you like it or not, because those students require you to be your best. I think what most of our listeners and just the general public is not aware of is the fact that just teaching in the classroom is probably 20% of the teacher's job. She, he or she has so much more to do than just be in the classroom and teach a specific thing a day. There is professional development, like you said, there is keeping up with everything that's happening in the academia and the things that are changing within it. There is that office component of keeping up with the social relationships within the office and building them outside. So I'm glad to see that both of you feel positively about balancing them. And it's interesting that you bought you bought lesson plans up because I think that was one of the reasons uh, after a while, now that I'm a little older, I, I feel like I've uh, subconsciously on some level thought horribly about the fact that when I was a kid, I used to sit my mom, stay up and make lesson plans all night during what was supposed to be her vacation, simply because there was not enough technology for them to just make up a lesson plan on the computer. She had to make it on pen and paper. She had to get it Xeroxed so she could go and distribute it when the school started to maybe other teachers to someone she wanted to share it with. And I, I always knew for a good day job, I would always go into computers. But especially after I came here and I realized that things like the lack of technology in classrooms, the lack of resources in classrooms are not just endemic to a society in a third world nation like mine, but they're also so commonplace here in America that teachers often go out and riot. Those things bothered me to a point where I thought, if I'm going to do something with my computer science job, I am going to invest my knowledge of technology and my knowledge of resources division to school districts that might not be as well off as the others, to schools that might not be as well off as the others to teachers and students that might not have all the advantages that good school districts share. So that led me into education and that helped me make that connection between education and technology. So for the listeners, Shashank, would you want to tell them just sort of basically what you what you uh, are up to? Because yeah, you're not in the classroom, but you definitely help out uh, classroom teachers. Yes. Thank you, Barry, for keeping it professional and actually making me making sure I say the answer that would give them the full picture. I, I appreciate that. Uh, yes, I work at the Arkansas Department of Education. I work as a data analyst. So that's just fancy speak for website maintainer. So I, I maintain a couple of websites that teachers use across the state to keep up with their student records, to keep up with their things like lesson plans, to keep up with their local assessment databases and just all kinds of uh, neat academic, non-academic student data that teacher would need to make a better data-driven decision for a student. So she doesn't have to spend as much time in the classroom using pen and paper and indulging in manual labor. That's one of the websites that I maintain. And I go often go out to the state and train teachers and school personnel on 
So I, I feel like I, I'm giving them a resource that even little or big makes a positive difference in their daily lives to where they can spend more time actually focusing on the students. That is very important because I'm very grateful to you and it does make a difference. I really appreciate those people who come in and train me on the technology side because I'm, yeah, I'm busy writing lesson plans. And then when I get trained on this new software or what have you, it's just so amazing. And it, it does, it affects my lesson plans and it affects how well that I know my students, you know, like I said, if I can see their past data, their past test scores and, and get a better picture of who the student is coming into my classroom, then that's only going to make me a better teacher. So thank you for what you do. Oh, I really don't know how much of a difference I make, but you're welcome. And thank you for to both of you for being teachers and choosing the most sacred institution that a human being can go to to gain all their life lessons. So I don't know if anything I do will be as big or as important as what you guys do, but I'm just happy to be in the field and will hopefully make a tiny difference in your lives. So before we get into, we, we've divided up the uh, the conversation into three main parts, and then there's actually some extra parts that we're going to be bringing up a little bit later. But uh, we're going to be talking about Trek culture in the classroom uh, to start, then set a course, which I'll tell you all about later, and then you will be assimilated. And then we'll be moving on to uh, some, some final topics to think about. But uh, before we get started and really kind of bring the Trek in, Amy, I was wondering if you could uh, provide some insights as well as, as Shashank was talking about with technology and stuff in the classroom. How do you feel technology has um, changed your teaching workload? Has it has it increased it? Has it decreased it? Or has it just sort of changed the, the dimension of it? It has changed the dimension. I would like to say that it has decreased it, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it hasn't. <laughs> I think, you know, how I prepare lesson plans, like now I have a, a digital copy instead of writing things down, uh, but I still do sort of my handwritten, but then I also put it into the digital copy as per mandated by my district. Um, but I enjoy having that lesson plan sort of right there, you know, on the software program that we use. I love, love, love the technology with the calculators. And that has drastically changed the way that I teach math. Um, I use the TI Inspire, which is really a mini calculator. If you don't know what I'm talking about, please go on to the Texas Instrument website. Um, this calculator has a keyboard. Um, they can type their answers. I can send them files. We can look at a progression of a function. We can look at how changing one variable, what that does to a graph. Um, it's the most amazing technology that I have, and I embrace it completely. There are lesson plans already on the TI website that I can pull and modify. So although it takes a lot of time to find those lessons, so the timing of it still hasn't changed, uh, but how I deliver the math lessons definitely has changed because of those calculators. That is incredible. Thank you for sharing that. I would agree that the that yeah, it's a change, and and it's funny how a lot of people have sort of inferred that automation will make our work lives easier. But I think in a lot of cases, it's actually caused us to take on more, and then at the same time, also 
I think being a teacher and just the fact that it inco- it incurs so much brain brain trust work that that any teacher who just sort of presses go and hits play on something is really just waiting for for it's a recipe for disaster really i think so i i appreciate that you're saying the same thing down in uh, your neck of the woods amy as we've you know we've started on the whole google drive classroom stuff like that and i think it's a, a fabulous resource but uh, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't really change the amount of work we do as teachers but it definitely makes the work i would say more accessible for the young people and also i i use it as kind of a uh a question a student my one of my students asked me they said you know if if star trek takes place in the 23rd and 24th century why on earth are there so many people on the bridge and on the ship shouldn't more things be automated and i i replied with you know if we had a school with fewer teachers in it what would that do to the school community and they didn't really have an immediate answer because i think as much as automation does help us and the tech the technology that we utilize definitely increases the breadth and scope of what we can teach. I think the human aspect is always going to be there. And I don't think that a huge, you know, complement of crew on say a starship is out of the question, given the, given the sense that that human element is still going to be required even up into the 24th century. So I hope it's not a, uh, I hope that's a predictive element of Star Trek. I don't know what you guys. Well, I think that brings into discussion what I've seen and maybe you've seen in the whole field of education. Like, you know, if you have an effective teacher, then you want all the kids in with that teacher. And I've seen it everywhere I go where students are trying to transfer to try and get teacher A and not get teacher B because teacher A is the better teacher. And I can see from the administration point of view that it's like, well, we want all the teachers to be good. We want everyone to have the same opportunities. So if you have a student who's in with an ineffective teacher, their education is compromised now because of this teacher. So we want to ensure that every teacher is good. And how do you do that? You can't clone effective teachers. Um, And so then you get these mandates of, you must do lesson plans like this. You must use this. And so we get this uh, onslaught of directives from administrators and from those who really aren't in the teaching world coming down, making decisions. And I know it's coming from a good place, but are is that the best way to ensure that you're getting effective teachers in every classroom by always coming down with these mandates of you must do this, you must do that. It's it's very complicated because you do have, you, you are going to have effective teachers and you are going to have ineffective teachers. That's, that's human nature, right? In any job. I actually yeah. would agree with both of you in spite of someone who instinctively wants to fight for the technology side and the regulation side of things with the mandates. Uh, and the fact that there is a Department of Education in every state. And then there is the Federal Department of Education here in the US. In the US, I think it's similar in Canada, Barry, I could be wrong. Uh, but the fact that there is that, and the fact that these are functioning organizations that need people who spend their entire lives in education, just shows that education and technology, both to me, are things that have to be constantly improved, have to be constantly changed for the changing generations, for the fact that there are changing demographics, for the fact that there are there is changing technology. 
and what maybe works in one month could maybe not work next month. Like there are things like the ACT Aspire assessment that might work great for a long time, but then there are assessments that you can, as a school organization, as a teacher in a classroom and someone at the technology side of things go, yeah, this is a bad idea within a month of getting into it. So I think it's very much trial and error within teaching, outside of teaching and technology in teaching, especially. Yeah, I would, I would fully agree. And, and that's the thing is where, where it becomes a very dynamic, uh, a very dynamic place because of course we are not dealing with just like the, the assembly of, of, of cars or anything like that. You know, each human brain has more synapses in it than there are stars in our own galaxy. So when you really think about what the final frontier is, I mean, there it is, it's in, it's in young minds. And so it's a, it's a pretty great honor that all three of us get a chance to work into that. So to start the first question off, how, Amy, do you sort of Trekify your classroom or do you see that as a, as a necessity, you know, to, you know, as a fan of Trek and as an educator, how does that manifest itself? So let's start with like a physical sense. Oh boy. I love my classroom in part because it says so much about me. I have an entire corner. All right. More than a corner. Uh, two sides of my room just covered in Star Trek stuff. And kids walk in, they instantly know what my love is. My love is Star Trek. Most of them, they know, you know, Spock and the new movies, you know, they know those. And I have the posters up for uh, 09 Into Darkness and Beyond. So that really draws them in. And then they're like, well, what are these? Oh, the bald captain. Yeah, I think I know him, you know. And so it's a great conversation starter. Um, I started with a couple of things that I stole from my brother who liked the original series and he had a couple of TNG things. And so I started, but my collection has grown significantly all because people keep giving me stuff. They see that I like Star Trek and I'll have an open house and parents come in and it, it does not fail every year. I'll have a kid come back. Hey, my dad saw that you like Star Trek and he found this and wants you to have it because he knows that you'll take better care of it than him. I mean, I've had old coloring books and stamp sets and a lot of old TOS stuff. Um, but I have also some other teachers that have given me some stuff. I have a great uh, cutout, life-size cutout of Captain Picard and he stands in my window, which is just wonderful. And greets every student that comes into my classroom. And I have uh, some other treasured things. Uh, some parents who actually worked uh, with Paramount gave me uh, some negatives of uh, some shots, promotional shots that were done for TOS. So I have those framed and up on the wall. Uh, just a lot of odds and ends, some playing cards and, you know, collector things like that. It's just been very enjoyable to to have this displayed and to have the students you know talk to me and go over to my corner and look and ask questions so it's it's really really great that's fascinating i'm very very jealous of everything you have especially that cut out if you find one day that you go into your classroom in las vegas nevada and you find that it's gone just ignore it i'm just gonna oh. <laughs> I like that you mentioned, Amy, that that 
it's sort of like a, a piece of you. And I think that's one of the best parts of being a teacher is really what, what these uh, young people get to do is they, they get to walk sort of inside of your persona, you know, like who you are. And it's a, it's a really neat way to kind of share who you are to, to, to people. And, and, and I think when they get to see that, it is a very encouraging thing for those, for those young people. I, I also have a, terrifyingly quickly growing section of my classroom that is being filled with more and more Trek things. Um, I've got uh, pins on my bulletin board and posters and on my desk, like you've, like you've had as well, Amy, I have uh, students, they've given me some of the, um, you can get there like a little figurines, little toy figurine versions of like the communicator mm -hmm. and the Galileo and uh, the TOS enterprise. And so it's sort of funny how, yeah, like I'm noticing more and more, the the students are sort of being my like enablers for Star Trek. There was one student who <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> he kept he during class he he got all his work done, but he's definitely um, he 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 is a student who is on the spectrum, uh, the autism spectrum, and so but he and I get along really well, and we have a really good rapport with one another, and so he'll he'll do his work, but he'll furiously be putting together Lego pieces or Mega Blocks, I guess, and so he's been making he's been going to the dollar store. And buying these little Mega Block sets of um, scenes from TOS, so he he gave me a a red shirt and a Klingon standing in front of his creation of the Guardian of Forever, and uh, just all these different things are 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 being <laughs> being given to me now. And he'll just come up and be like, "Here you go, Mister DeFord," and then I'll be like, "Oh, th th thank thank you." And I I don't know where to put them anymore, so like I put them all in my desk uh, over. Um, Christmas break because I was worried that they would get knocked over or something because we have a very a very hardworking cleaning staff in our school and the other day he he comes in and he's like where are all of my blocks and I'm like oh oh they're they're in this drawer I've been keeping them safe oh my he's goodness like, that's good he's like they'll be safe in there they should stay there and I'm like oh phew <laughs> then he walked away and sat down so yeah but it's it's such a great way to to be able to sort of project a bit of yourself into uh, into the space in which you teach. And so that, that's really cool. What about you, Shashank? You, you also have a, a workspace. Do you adorn it? One of the things about working in an office setting is the fact that I might not get as much fun, as much real estate to spread around my love for Trek as typically a teacher in a classroom would. But that really doesn't stop me from making a lot of Star Trek references. If you meet anyone in my team of seven, one of the first three things they'll probably tell you is, yeah, that kid is really into Star Trek. I work with a lot of people over 35 and most of them have seen Star Trek and some growing up. So it's a give or take situation with them. And it's a lot of, some of them really have dedicated their lives to Star Trek. I have one friend who every time we get a chance at work, all we do is start uh, talking about Star Trek. We talk about one episode that we saw the other day. We talk about one particular character that we are in love with that week. And she has little posters of Star Trek in her cubicle as do I. And I have a bunch of tiny action figures that are lined up right next to my computer. But mostly I do do a lot of Star Trek references enough to a fault. Sometimes people will tell me, hey, I know you watch Star Trek, but there are other metaphors that exist in the civilization uh, and people who talk the English language that do not have to do with photon torpedoes and shields being down and shields being up. But the cool thing about having a boss who's also a Star Trek lover is that I swear whoever designed our conference room in the office 
was thinking about the conference room in TNG because every time we get in there, that is the first image that comes to my mind. And my boss is in there sitting in the captain's chair and he always greets me when I come into that room and saying, hey, first officer, what are you doing? And we make a lot of Riker references when I'm taking a risk and saying, hey, maybe we should go this way with that website. He would go, not not so fast, Riker. Maybe we should not break the website today. So there are a lot of non-physical references as well as physical references, but at the office. One of the coolest things that I do is since I travel and I have my laptop with me, my laptop is adorned with Star Trek memorabilia. And that helps me that actually helps me recognize fellow Star Trek fans. I could go to a tiny city in Arkansas that probably has 300 people and no stop sign. But somebody will look at my my badge that I'm wearing on my shirt or a sticker on my computer and go, hey, that's Star Trek, right? Hey, that's the Borg, right? Hey, that's Riker, right? So it's delightful that I get to actually take my nerddom representations with me on the road. Wow. I, I like that, 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 you know, and that is sort of the connecting piece you can use. I like the fact that you use language as well. And, um, I kind of go a little bit further. I, I have been doing a stick figure of the USS enterprise since, since I was very young. I actually don't fully remember now exactly how long I've been doing it, but, um, I use that to teach grammar. And so when my, my grade seveners come into my, my classroom in, in Canada, we call it grade we say grade first rather than seventh grade. So it's, it's a big mess up. So if I, if I've confused anyone, I'm sorry. Anyways, when my, when my sevens come in, they'll, they'll come in and sit down. And if they see on the whiteboard, I've drawn the stick figure of the enterprise with green, um, sort of parentheses around them. They know that it's time to play the USS grammar prize. And so I give them a little worksheet. They get into their groups. I divide them up into engineering, uh, weapons and navigation. And then from there, they have to they have to keep the ship going. And so I usually will give them some amazing scenario and then they have to solve grammatical problems. And if they fail, then I roll dice to see how much damage the Romulans or the Klingons or or the Tholians have done to them. And so I find that that's a really good way uh, to use, like you say, Shashank, a um, a bit of a trek feel into my day to day work and stuff. So this is what we like to call setting a course, I guess you could say. And so in, in my, in my course, uh, in my lesson planning and stuff, it's always something that I, I try to do as much as I can, not only to keep myself interesting, interesting and interested, it uh, definitely my enthusiasm rubs off on the kids for sure. Barry, you know that teachers still, and so I am so stilling that. That is the best. I so love splitting them up into groups like that and having them solve problems to save the enterprise. I'm going to have to come up with something cute for math, though. Oh, yeah. I'll send I'll send you the premise of my lesson plans. I've got like a anticipatory set and stuff like that. I can I can fire off in your direction. That is so great. Amy, when you do come up with your exercises for your math class, can you please name one of them Kobayashi Matru? Yes, perfect. The Kobayashi Matru. <laughs> <laughs> This is so coming together. I love it. Have you done any anything like that yourself? Well, nothing now nothing as great as that, Barry. Oh my gosh. Now I have to follow that. Um I do show so when I taught pre-algebra, uh, we introduced the Cartesian coordinate plane. And that's for you listeners, that's our X and Y axis. Um and so I tell them the story about Rene Descartes and how he you know, saw a fly on a wall and then how this grid system sort of came up in his mind. And so then I show uh, 
the scene of the uh, holodeck, you know, with just the black and the yellow, the grid system. And I said, this is what the Cartesian coordinate plane is. It's this grid system so that you can locate anything in space. So I sort of do a tie-in with that. And it's not a whole lesson plan, but I, I tie it in. One of the ones that I do recently with my seniors is we talk about logic statements. And that's your, you know, if a statement is true or false. And in Mud's Women, at the end where Kirk is telling the computer or whatever there, he says, I am lying to you. I am lying to you. And so we talk about, is that a statement? Is that mathematically true or false? And so then we go on to, you know, what this paradox is. And so you can't have a paradox, therefore it's not a statement. And that just sort of launches our conversation into, you know, these logic statements and the whole logic unit that I do. And so that's, that's sort of fun. We do that. No, that's that's also very very cool. And actually, I'm totally going to steal your paradox statement on the <laughs> idea of I am um, I am telling you the truth. The previous sentence was false. Yes. Yeah. Well, there's a little video clip on YouTube that's just that little part, and it's so cool. And the kids, I mean, because it's TOS, you know, and his the brain of the computer. Well, you guys have seen the episode. I don't have to explain it to you, but, you know, the smoke coming out of his hair is so funny, and the kids get a real kick out of it because it's so old, you know. That is totally cool. So yeah, we here we are, and, and this is the this is the point, uh, dear listeners, or uh, that that teachers will. Amy and I are just going to start trading lesson plans if we don't get Shashank in here. Um, how about you, Shashank? I'm so glad there's a lot of friendly, harmless intellectual property theft happening on on Polytrex. It's yet another first on our series in what will be one of many many harmless crimes that will probably happen on this podcast. So good job, guys. I'm very proud of both of you. Teachers, teachers have to steal from one another in order to survive. It is, uh, yes. we are a band of thieves. We are. <laughs> uh, as far as my situation goes, the fact that I don't get to interact a whole lot with kids takes, takes away the need to make, to, to go to a specific situation, to a specific plot line or a specific exercise that we can use more uh, over and over. But since the challenge in my job, is usually to reinvent technology, often at the cost of forsaking something from education, something from the teacher's experience on a website or something that might be useful in the software to us that might actually not be as productive to a teacher. I often run into a lot of no-win scenarios. And I know I was joking about Kobayashi Maru, but every time something like that happens, both me, my boss, or whoever I'm working with, who understands the basic Star Trek references and knows what a Kobayashi Maru is, we immediately go into a situation like that where we think about if I'm going to change A in my website, how will that affect B for the teacher's experience? And how do I find a balance? Because both of these are either causing issues or both of these are being very productive. But for the third step that we're trying to do to happen we'll have to forsake something from both of these. So there is a, there are a lot of no-win scenarios that come up at my office situation where we often go into the examples of the Kobayashi Maru. And as someone who goes out on training, I often drop my training chart across the state as if I were drawing up the chart of a star system. And I'll, I'll imagine myself having a tiny science vessel 
which is my beautiful 2008 Scion. And I will think I have X amount of gas. I have X amount of resources. I have X amount of time. How do I get all my X values to work together in conjecture so I'm utilizing everything to the best of my value? So I would use specific examples like the Kobayashi Maru at work. And every now and then when we're trying to reinvent our website, we'll talk about how there are things that are different in old Star Trek that might not have been that good in new Star Trek. So we'll think about, hey, Khan was great in Wrath of Khan. Khan in Star Trek Into Darkness, eh, not so much. So we'll think about, this looks great now. What? How will it look like to others when we change it? So uh, the those are things that I use mainly in my office. But personally, when I have to go out on a training schedule, I get my star system up. I chart it over the state uh, based on the educational districts. And I just say, this is the best route I can think of. And I follow it and I see what happens. It's fascinating. You know, I, I wonder, you know, you mentioned the idea of the Kobayashi Maru, and uh, there are a lot of times both inside and, and for yourself outside of the classroom. And I think other people in, in different jobs will, will find no-win scenarios. And uh, it's always interesting watching how different individuals will deal with no-win scenarios. Of course, uh, we're all very careful not to mention names here because, of course, we deal with the vulnerable sector along with our, our fellow members of staff we may be members of a union with and all of that. But uh, I am also an administrator at my school. And uh, the good part about the uh, teaching up here in, in, in my province of Alberta is administrators are still part of the teachers union and still get to teach. And so I really feel like we are, are kind of pulled from from the group of teachers and then uh, and then get to sort of work on their behalf. And I've definitely had some moments where I've been working with a teacher trying to support him or her in what can we can perceive to be a no-win scenario. And, uh, you know, I do often have these moments where uh, I feel like Dr. McCoy, McCoy just sort of lounging on the ground like, well, you know, this is where I am now. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I like the idea of the Kobayashi Maru because I think I think you go through at least two to, two to five of them every school year. Uh, would you find that as well, uh, Amy? Yes, definitely. And I'm very impressed that your administrators are still actively teaching. I, I think too many times I've seen administrators get removed, even when they're in a school building and they're not taking the time to interact with the students or, you know, see the teaching that's going on. They're just in so many meetings and too many administrative responsibilities that they lose sight. So I'm very impressed with that. Yeah, I'm actually, um, I'm actually bargaining for my union tomorrow as well. The, the next, uh, the next two days, I'm one of the administrative representatives who's going to be, uh, fighting for, for some, some better working conditions for, for some of our teachers and, and, and whatnot. So obviously can't go into the, the details there, but I'm, I, I wouldn't, if I had to choose, obviously, um, if they ever said, you know, okay, well, you know, administrators are purely going to take on a managerial role, I would immediately step down from my position and and go back to just being a teacher because mm -hmm. take me out of the you take me out of the classroom, you've basically taken the heart out of my chest. So, yeah. One of the things that I am often impressed by, just like you, Amy, is the number of Kobayashi Marus that Barry's get it. Barry gets into. He often shares every now and then some of the things that he used to deal with over a weekend. And I go, well, the biggest problem I have this weekend is maybe at work, one thing on my website's not working. And then he'll tell me, oh yeah, you want to hear about my weekend? Mm -hmm. And I'll go, how do you possibly get out of that? And not 
lose. And I'll just be amazed at the solutions he comes up with. So that's another layer, I think, to front-end working people in the education sector, like teachers and administrators, is the fact that along with everything else that they have to do by the book, they also have to be very creative and come up with solutions that work for everyone. As we engage with uh, with these these young people who are uh, who really are sort of the center of our of our lives, um, and a lot of people go, you know, hey Barry, you don't have any kids yet, you know, why don't you have any kids? And I'm like, Are you silly, I have two hundred and you know however many we have, you know, <laughs> or or more depending on what school I'm at. And so, uh, have you ever had an effect on a student where they? ended up being like, yeah, I checked out these episodes of Trek and you know what? I think I like it or, or whatnot. Just to give you an example, I, I get the Vulcan, Vulcan live long and prosper salute pretty often. And actually we, there was a big bus tragedy just recently in, uh, in, in the neighboring province, an entire hockey team was, uh, most of a, an entire, uh, semi-professional hockey team was killed in a, uh, a head on collision and their, their bus was basically disintegrated. And, uh, the entire country of Canada has, has sort of rallied around this little community known as Humboldt, Saskatchewan, uh, that the team was called the Broncos. And, um, I think right now the, sadly the death toll is at about 16. And, um, we did a, a picture where we all dressed in the Broncos colors. We were in green and, uh, there's a few students who you see in the picture who are flashing the live long and prosper salute. So, uh, I have definitely assimilated a number on my end. Um, so that's a thing. That is, yeah, that is pretty awesome. And I I heard about that tragedy up there. Yeah. Heart goes out. Everyone up there. Yeah. But have you, have, have you assimilated any, any students uh, into your, uh, into the world of Trek? Do you think? I, I do. I think that I have. They're in ever so slightly different ways that it shows up. I think my kids know how to get that little bit of extra credit. Like when I ask them to do, you know, like a PowerPoint presentation or something, and they will automatically choose the Star Trek theme, you know, or they will interject some kind of Star Trek reference into their presentations. Um, I think it's on their minds a little bit more or the, They'll say, oh, Miss Nelson, did you go to this store? And they had Star Trek and I thought of you, you know, and I thought, oh, that's so sweet that they're seeing Star Trek where they go. So um, I have a student actually this year and with Discovery out and, you know, I do the the podcast on it. Um, so the student every week that it came out, we would always talk at the door on the way in, you know, and I was just so excited to see her. I'm like, oh my gosh, did you see the episode? And we would talk about what happened on Discovery. And then I was like, oh, did you see it? And she's like, no. And I said, why not? Well, I didn't do my homework. And so my parents told me I couldn't watch it till I got caught up. I'm like, what? That is child abuse. You can't be doing that. (laughs) I said, you start doing your homework because we have to talk about this every week. She's like, I know, Miss Nelson, I know. So I had to give her a hard time for that. Um, so that has been really fun to have that connection, uh, you know, with that specific student. Um, I have another very interesting connection uh, with a boy that I had, a, a male student, and he started watching like the original series and TNG Um, while he was in my class and he was telling me that he was going through and just watching episode after episode after episode. 
And he would come to me, oh, did you see this? Did you watch this one? And he sort of got into some DS9 that I wasn't as familiar with. And he's like, oh, I love this. And so I know at least that those two students for sure um, started watching Star Trek because of me. And it was, yeah, it was a couple of years ago. And this student came in in February and just had this look on his face. And he came up and he's like, Miss Nelson. And he gave me this hug. And I was like, what's going on? And he's like, I'm so sorry for your loss. And I'm like, what's what's going on? And he was the one to tell me that Leonard Nimoy had passed that morning. And I, I will never oh. forget that moment because he was so concerned for me and my emotional well-being over losing Leonard Nimoy that he just came up and gave me the warmest hug. I just that is so special to me that to have this student take the time to come and give me a hug for losing Leonard Nimoy. You know, I just it was amazing. Very special. That is a beautiful story. That that is the way you know that you've you've reached a student as well, especially that uh, that type of empathy and yeah, that's so cool and and I mean tragic but 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 beautiful and cool at the same time. Yeah, it's incredible that between both of you, if you were to just re-listen to your answers, as someone who's an observer in the situation and does not interact with students as much to convert, I can find a lot of similarities in the answers you shared, and it seems like starting them young, starting them on the original series, for example, or the next generation, something that is very, that seems like it's designed not just for adult minds to understand complex themes. It's also designed in a strange way for young minds to understand the big picture things and get a new perspective on, on things in our lives in general. The fact that you guys are using that to your fullest to get converts, that makes me proud. But I would also like to know, as someone who has failed in not getting a lot of people converted. Did you guys ever fail in that mission? Oh yeah, tons of times. I've there's kids who just totally hate Star Trek and they they roll their eyes at all the stuff I have or Halloween time I I I have three costumes that I wear and I was like it was like a Tina Turner concert. I I started the morning in my uh my TNG and then I switched to TOS and then I ended off with my my Voyager outfit and uh yeah, there was one kid who was just like, "What is your problem, man? Like you're you're you know totally totally gonzo." So it happens. Oh my gosh, that's funny. Well, you'll get the occasional student, uh, not so much because most people at my school really know that I love Star Trek, but you'll get the occasional kid, especially when Star Wars comes out. Oh, I Star Wars is better than Star Trek, you know, and they rib and they joke. And then I kick him out in the hall for being insubordinate. So. <laughs> any, any listeners listening from the Nevada Department of Education, we did not condone that behavior. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Actually, on, on May on May the fourth, I always wear my TOS uniform <laughs> to be subversive. And this- Exactly. This year, May the 4th, we actually have a PD day. So uh, we're at the school and my fellow administrator and I uh, were setting everything up. And last year's in-school PD day, I did a very like Trek focused one where I divided again everybody up and we had a, uh, a breakout session. You guys familiar with breakout? You have to like solve puzzles. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So my friend and I um, sort of pseudo built a a breakout session on the premise of um, 
kind of a, a basically the the enterprise d is being attacked on several fronts right the warp core is about to breach there is a biogenic weapon that's been released um and then they're also being pulled into like a gravity well of uh of a large planet and so the navigate again it's the division between engineering medical and navigation in this sense and um you have each each group has to sort of break their way out by solving these puzzles we we were destroyed sadly <laughs> but, uh, but uh yeah so that was last year's pd and so this year's pd i'm coming in in a in a uniform so yeah i, I try to be i try to be as uh, as subversive as possible especially when they bring up star trek and sorry the, the the point of that story was is um a number of teachers were like oh well i just want to use a jedi mind trick on the so-and-so or maybe can i can't i use the force or you know is darth Mm -hmm. vader going to show up soon and i and they they weren't doing it out of ignorance they were just trying to be turds and those uh we should say for our listeners who aren't in the education lingo pd is professional development (laughs) yeah sorry (laughs) yeah that i i talked for a long time without anyone knowing what the heck i was talking about Every every time we release a podcast, we also release a bunch of helpful links. I think for this episode, we'll just release a lot of education acronyms and what things like PD mean. That should do it. Yes. I agree. <laughs> to close off this discussion about teaching Trek, I would love uh, for Barry and Amy, you both of you to weigh in on, are there four lights or five? And maybe if you can just tell me, as someone who has been teaching with such a Trek-heavy mindset within your classrooms while also experiencing in in general the differences that are for cla- for classroom experiences that might not be so Trek-heavy. What do you think are the big differences or maybe what do you think are the subtle differences that you as a trekker in education feel that is not being achieved or attained as someone who might teach from a non-trek perspective? Well, I think the largest part of Star Trek is in its philosophy. And I will have kids that ask with all sincerity, Miss Nelson, why do you like Star Trek? Because they don't understand. And every single time my response is, this is someone's vision of our future. What can we be? How can we be better? How can we embrace all different types of diversity and cultures and civilizations and species? And how can we use technology to get us to be these better human beings? And I think it's that idea that it is our possible future, like that permeates in everything and and how I view my world and therefore how I teach. And we will get into, you know, some random discussions like in math, we always, you know, look at linear regressions and and how is that going to predict the future and you know, mathematically. And so then some kids will make some random comment. Well, what about this? And I said, yeah, it definitely will happen. It hasn't happened yet, you know, and then they all roll their eyes because they know I'm talking about Star Trek. They know that I have this great idea of how our future is going to turn out because I believe that we will get to this Star Trek utopia society. So I think that idea of philosophy of us being better and 
embracing diversity is prevalent in in the way that I teach. I would agree with that. That is an incredible answer. Yeah. The the fact that you touched on so many things in that question actually leads me to very much the perspective I have as well. And taking math as an example, if there is anything that math tells you, it's that there is nothing in the world that's actually random. The fact that they teach you that everything is random shows that there is an order to even the randomness mm-hmm. that exists within numbers and all things of life. From the size of the from the size of a flower bud to the scope of the universe, the fact that math can teach us everything shows that everyone belongs. There really is no such thing as a wrong answer. There are just diverse opinions. There are different opinions. And the fact that you consider what are more right than the other, the fact that you consider what lead to a better life than the other. The fact that you as a teacher and as an educator often think about the fact that the one kid that maybe another non-track teacher would have gone, well, that's a silly answer where you go. Maybe that's just a different way of thinking that I'm not thinking about. Mm-hmm. The minute that the fact that you guys take that minute as an educator to think maybe there is no such thing as a box and maybe everybody's out of the box or maybe nobody's out of the box. I think that leads to just a philosophical and fundamental difference in the way you approach education. And I think personally, that is how someone who teaches from a tech track perspective has a has maybe a more advantaged viewpoint of education. I would hope so, because what what does Star Trek really espouse, right? It, it espouses hope. It it pushes it pushes for, as Amy said, you know that 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 brighter utopian future. And if you look at a lot of the speculative fiction, so that's uh, science fiction and then fantasy and kind of all rolled up, uh, and then especially in young adult fiction, that's that follows the same um, the same genre. You've got like Maze Runner, Hunger Games, City of Bones, all of these dystopian futures where you've got these kids. Like I couldn't watch Hunger Games; I, I couldn't do it. I, I don't like the, the just the thought of kids hurting one another is is abhorrent to me. So anyone who likes Hunger Games, awesome, great, good, good for you. I uh, I'm not going to do it. I can't do it. And so I think that's one of the big things is, you know, when, when people uh, say, why do you like Star Trek? Cause yeah, I mean, I get the same question. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this is, this is why is because I have a hope uh, for that future and, and you are the next step. So let's start talking about these positive things. And, and Shashank, you saying, you know, through math, we can see how everybody belongs. I think that's another really important piece of it because I think a lot of um, a lot of work gets loaded onto the humanities section of like history, civic, social studies, and English language arts for like how do you feel about this and how do we all connect? But it's like no, science and math are the cornerstone of what gets us warp drive, what gets us into the future in uh, in Star Trek, and so therefore it needs to be I think at the center of of our enthusiasm to learn as well and. Uh, yeah, let's hope that let's hope that keeps going. I have had the best time listening to you, both of you today, especially from someone who comes at this more from an educational technology standpoint, as for as as opposed to the point that you have, which is core education and getting everything in the world composed into how to make your life better and your kids' life better as an educator. I would love for this conversation to just keep going for as long as it can. So in the spirit of that, Amy, how how can people get in touch with you, people that are listening to us and maybe have questions or comments about how you said things today or the things that you said? Yeah, I love talking Star Trek and I love talking teaching. So you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Miss Amy Nelson. 
You can find me on the Trek FM network where I podcast on The Edge. That is a podcast on Star Trek Discovery. And I I work on Earl Grey with Justin Ozer and Richard Marquez. And that's my favorite one because that's the next generation. So I talk Discovery and Next Generation over there on Trek FM. And so that's where you can find me. One other question I would ask is, now we know where to find you online, but where would we find you on the Enterprise D, Lieutenant Nelson? Or Captain Nelson? Well, we didn't actually touch on this, um, but my favorite character is Counselor Deanna Troy. And I did get my counseling degree, in part because of her. So I would like to think that I'm going to be Counselor Nelson. That's awesome. That, that is so make sure everybody follows uh, Amy Nelson on Twitter and just as a shout out follow Marina Sertis on Twitter because she makes some incredible points every now and then. Oh, yeah, she does. She's hilarious. I love her. Thank you for joining us, Amy. We had a lot of fun. And if I was to share a final thought about just our interview, you have very impressive Star Trek bona fides and you have absolutely floored both of us. And the honor is definitely ours. And on a side note, if you ever want me to kick Barry off the podcast, you and I can totally do that. I'm more than happy. Okay. I'm good. I might hold you to that. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me on your amazing show. I just really. I'm so excited to be here talking Politrex with you. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed that main topic. It certainly was a delight for me. The questions came up between the three of us and it just developed organically from conversation. And those are the best kinds of questions. And I don't know about me, but those two, are these, these intelligent, insightful two had such wonderful answers. I just had a delightful time listening to them and I've taken away so much from that experience. And we really hope to have Amy Nelson back in the future, but that's about... What I have to say on our uh, wonderful episode with Amy Nelson, what are your final thoughts about our uh, main topic today, Barry? I just love the fact that it seems like a common thread among educators that you you give a piece of yourself. And, you know, obviously a, a major piece of me is is my love for Trek. And it, it, it springs from that that hope that we talked about earlier in the episode in the new segment, that, that hope does spring eternal. And, you know, when I look at the, the young people that I teach every single day, I see the future, right? Um, I, don't have to, I don't have to hop on my, my favorite streaming platform or pull out my DVDs to, to see what I hope to see the future. And I can actually help work toward making that, that greater world. And to get to share that time with, uh, with Amy coming on the show was just fantastic because it's just nice to see that. And I would argue that every teacher worth their salt is giving every part of them to the students and the young people who they teach. And I'm really happy in, in, in the profession that I'm in. Pretty great place to be every single day. So with that, I believe we've come to the end of a slightly longer episode again, but I think that's perfectly fine. I hope you all enjoyed it. And you can always uh, follow us on Facebook and Twitter and see what we have to say and keep the conversation going. I don't see why not. And of course, you can always check out all the rest of the shows on the Tricorder Transmissions Podcast Network. There's so much to see, so much, or sorry, there's so much to listen to. 
but if you do have more Trek that you are interested in consuming, there's a ton of delicious Trek consumables over on the Trek Geeks podcast. You can check out Dan and Bill there, too. So with that, we say goodbye, live long and prosper. And onward to Star Sighting. <laughs>